diluted, and I listen to KTFA all the, all the time, in my car, in the mornings, in the evenings. I appreciate the diversity, and I value its existence, and I am a faithful subscriber. That's right. This is KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, as well as KFCF in Fresno. Remember to click us at kpfa.org. It is 3 o'clock. Now time for a cover to cover. Good afternoon, and welcome to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. I'm Kevin Cartwright. For the next half hour, I'll be speaking with Ravi Howard, author of Light Trees Walking, and we'll talk about his novel and his writing process. But prior to bringing Ravi on, I'd like to just synopsize uh, what his novel's about. In 1981, a 20-year-old black man, Michael Donald, was found lynched, hanging from a tree in Mobile, Alabama. The novel focuses on the two Deacon brothers, Paul and Roy Deacon, sons of the owner of Deacon Memorial Funeral Home. Roy narrates this uh, tale about a town and its residents trying to make sense of the murder and the racism that still permeates Mobile, the town's clan past and present surfaces. Initially, three young white men are arrested and then released, and the murder is unsolved. However, two years later, the clan murders are caught murderers, I should say, are caught and brought to justice. Michael Donald's family then sued the Klan and was awarded $7 million, bankrupting the terrorist organization. Now, this this novel in particular is uh, really interesting in the way Ravi Howard incorporates notions of memory, family, responsibility, kinship, community ties, and the legacy of oppression. Uh, it's very nuanced uh, and, and it's very interesting. And I just wanted to... Uh, Welcome, Robbie Howard, to Open Book. Good afternoon, Robbie. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining me. And I just gave like a really brief synopsis of, of some some aspects of the book. But I guess the the obvious question to you is, uh, what what compelled you to write about this? I think for me, this is a story that happened in 1981. I was uh, six years old at the time. And just over the years, you know, um, I kind of knew I wanted to become a writer eventually. But uh, once I kind of started my writing career, looking back at some of the stories I wanted to capture and fictionalize, this was one of the ones that kind of just kept coming up. I kept, uh, you know, remembering. So when I had the opportunity, I researched it and uh, first turned it into a short story, then later uh, developed it into a novel. Right. So, 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 how much of your own experience growing up in Montgomery uh, did you incorporate into the novel? I mean, like you mentioned, uh, talking about the early '80s, and I mean that that era is very familiar to me. But the cultural references are very, very interesting. So, so, how much was your own experience sort of utilized in, in the novel? Uh, quite a bit. Uh, th- there was quite a bit of you know personal experience that I, that I put into the book. Um, I grew up in Montgomery, and my my family grew up in Mobile. So I think it was kind of a hybrid of both experiences of you know traveling to Mobile in the summers or you know over vacations or for Mardi Gras. So a lot of that, you know, a lot of those memories, especially like Mardi Gras time and that sort of thing, 
those were memories that I kind of, you know, captured from my own life. And then from knowing, you know, some of the, I guess some of the lawyers who are in the book, uh, some of those kind of civil rights figures, you know, a lot of those people are still around and, you know, were still very active when I was growing up. So I wanted to kind of capture some of those voices, not just as historical references, but to make them feel very contemporary. So I, I drew quite a bit from, you know, personal experience. So, so talk about, uh, talk a little bit about, um, time. I think that, uh, it's interesting that you use the 1980s. I mean, the 1980s for many of us, <laughs> I guess, was a time of, uh, deep reflection and I imagine, uh, some, some degree of disappointment. Um, and in your novel, there, there are many references to how black people feel about some of the changes or, or rather, uh, things, the way things have stayed the same. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about like the, the, the time using, using the 1980s as an interesting trope and what was going on culturally? I think for me what was going on culturally just growing up, I know I, I lived in Jackson, Mississippi at the time and you know I went to a private school that was majority white and I think I had a similar experience with you know a lot of my first grade classmates, you know our parents were kind of children of the 60s and here we were you know in this environment that our parents could never have you know participated in so there was this sense of you know families trying to keep kids grounded and let us know what happened historically and you know I guess another thing I remember about the 80s was just you know the first space shuttle watching that in first grade and all of those things where it's felt like we were so far removed from our parents' experience. But then something like this, you know, something like the, the killing of Michael Donald happened, and then that kind of takes us back, you know, to that time that was very familiar, almost too familiar for, you know, our parents and grandparents. So I wanted to kind of capture, you know, that time that I don't know where people might, you know, place the mark of what is history and what is contemporary. So I think the 80s might have been that kind of, you know, in-between point. It didn't, for a lot of people, it didn't feel like history, but it wasn't quite, you know, the future that they had kind of envisioned that we were still kind of in the in-between, kind of in-between stage. So I wanted to kind of bring a little bit of, of that in, you know, in the 80s and just that we were kind of, you know, a decade or a generation past the civil rights movement, but there were still kind of things that needed to be settled. And you also write a lot about relationships, uh, be it sons and fathers, brothers and friends. Or why were why is relationships really important to to your novel? Hey, you know, I think for me, just Mobile was always kind of a, a place for family. Um, my, both of my parents grew up there. They both were from very large families, so I think that. I think the sense of family, those relationships were very important when I when I went to when I always went to Mobile. So I guess maybe that was one thing that I always thought about. And um also just from kind of the funeral home side of things, just those family relationships in terms of a family business, I also wanted to show you know, what are the bonds, it's the business bonds, but also family bonds that people have over time, especially in a small community, and what kind of pressure is put on those bonds, you know, when people want to maybe leave and go their own way, or people who want to stay, and, you know, what's the difference between just being a part of a tradition, but maybe also kind of being stagnant a little bit. So I wanted to show kind of how those bonds, you know, are stressed by people, you know, within those communities and, you know, all of our hopes and dreams as individuals and how those play out within a family bond. Okay. So uh, let's, let's, let's dig a little deeper into, into, the, into your novel, uh, Like Trees mm -hmm. Walking. 
Like, so, so explicate for us like some of some of the characters here. Let, let's talk about Paul Deacon. Like, what motivates Paul to move through the world and move through Montgomery? Like, what what are his inspirations and aspirations? I, th- I think for Paul, you know, he he does not necessarily want to be. Well, he has made it clear that he does not want to be a part of the family business, which is the funeral home business that you know his family has been in for over a hundred years. So he is very much. I guess looking forward, looking to the future, kind of carving his own future. So I think he's kind of motivated by, you know, breaking some of the old bonds and kind of creating creating some new relationships, kind of seeing a little bit more of the world, you know, what's holding him back. So is he kind of hitting, you know, is he hitting something of a glass ceiling or are there these just very old bonds, traditional bonds that, that are kind of holding him back? So I think for him he's just motivated by the sense of, you know, finding a new path for himself that's, you know, independent of where his family has been. Right, and, and there seems to be, without telling uh, our audience too much, but uh, mm-hmm. his, his, his life takes a profound shift, and, and, and there's, there's, you know, there, there's, I guess there's an event that happens that, like, kind of shifts his direction. Um, right, And right. There's, 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 a, there's a character in the book that, that gets lynched. Mm-hmm. Um, just... Let's talk about that. Like, let's talk about because I, I think th- there's a lot going on here. Um, and, right. and, and you use and you use you use lynching, which is still to this day a very powerful, uh, right. Right. intimidating thing for for many African Americans. Um, and it, it, it's one of these things that he's unable to really shake. I mean, he's, he's mm-hmm. he can't you know get rid of the the, right. the, right. the idea notion of it. So 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 talk about. The, the, almost the uh, the kind of the connection or intimacy of that, and how it, it kind of changes the direction of his own life. Yeah, I, I guess for me, just looking at the book, I wanted you know the jumping off point of the book to be kind of this true story, well, based on this true story of this lynching that actually did happen in 1981 in, in Mobile, uh, when Michael Donald, a young man, was lynched by Klansmen. And I think it just shocked so many people because they were just feeling that, you know, this kind of thing did not happen or could not happen in 1981. So there was just this shock that kind of, you know, lingered. So I wanted to look at Paul as someone who was about that age, you know, uh, about 19 years old uh, when this happened. And, you know, a friend of the young man, uh, Michael Donald, who was actually lynched. And so I wanted to look at, you know, how would someone, how would a 19-year-old, how would a teenager deal with something like that, something that really... And Mobile hadn't really happened since, you know, the, the 19-teens. Uh, so how was this young man who was very much looking to award his future, what was out ahead of him, having to all of a sudden be kind of thrown back into the past and look backwards at a very, a very painful kind of legacy and being forced to examine it, especially when a time when there were no answers about, you know, I guess the, the answers were still forthcoming about why this had happened, you know, the, the story of the, the actual trial. So I wanted to, you know, maybe put any reader kind of, any reader really into that moment so they could kind of be right over Paul's shoulder to see how someone who was very much, you know, a modern man, a, a, a young modern person looking toward his future would have to deal with this, you know, this very old, this very old vocabulary of violence. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's certainly compelling that character because, uh, you know, I, I think people, it, it, it begs a lot of questions. I mean, for me, uh, personally, it's it's, you know, how does one adequately deal with trauma in a culture that ne- doesn't necessarily 
uh, nurture w- what you think, how you think, <laughs> and whether right. you know there's a right. uh, depth to your emotionality and and so it's 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 a it's a challenge. And I wonder. I mean, I think you really you expertly kind of pose this very very meaningful question uh, to us. And you know, again, I don't want to like say too much about like his his uh, his journey because it's. Uh, mm-hmm. It, it's bittersweet <laughs> to say the mm-hmm. least, but um, but it, but I think it has a lot of relevance to what a lot of um, black men you know have to go through a lot of unresolved uh, questions, I, I guess. So it's 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 very interesting. Uh, talk about some of the elders um, in in this in this book uh, and as they relate to some of the younger people. It, it, is there is there an understanding that in their in their opinion, is there like optimism that still remains uh, that they can pass on to younger people, or are they have they become cynical given that it's 1981 and and it's and it's Ronald Reagan in office and right. they've already seen uh, a great degree of uh, progress being dismantled? I, I think from the the southern perspective, I think what was it was interesting what was happening in 1981, say. You know, from Mobile, like, you know, six hours away, we have Atlanta where you have, you know, you had a black mayor or you, by, by 1981, they'd had, uh, I guess, a couple of black mayors, you know, Maynard Jackson and Andrew Young. So there were these pockets of, you know, optimism, especially kind of on a municipal level. Um, and so people were kind of looking to things that were happening, um, I guess on that, you know, the city level of, of leaders like, you know, Andrew Young or Tom Bradley in Los Angeles or I guess, you know, years later, Harold Washington. So looking, you know, at, at those big cities is something of, I guess, as models. I think there was a lot of optimism. So I think if anything, people felt there might have been, I guess, not as much of a passing on of lessons. Uh, because I think a lot of people might have been a little bit lax there. They weren't looking so much at, you know, the history of kind of racial violence at that point. I think maybe they were starting to turn their attention to, you know, politics or economic development. So I think, you know, this case that happened, this lynching in 1981, just caught everyone by surprise. Right. So I feel like maybe, you know, 30 years earlier, people might have been a little bit more ready because they knew these kind of things were constantly happening. They were more ready to respond. But I think a lot of people had kind of, you know, maybe cast that aside. That was something that was old, so they were turning their attention to other things and were not really ready to deal with it or to pass the lessons along to the younger people. Right. That's the voice of Robbie Howard, author of Like Trees Walking, and we're chatting about his novel and his life as a writer. And so I, I am curious, why did you want to be a writer? I mean, what, what, what compelled you to want to do that? You know, I think for me it started just in junior high school or high school work, always kind of being drawn towards campus publications and and uh, little oratorical contest or, or writing contest um, in my hometown, which was Montgomery, where I spent most of my time growing up. And it was just, you know, something that I enjoyed doing. And I said, well, you know, if I have to do something for a living, it might as well be this. Uh, if, if I'm going to be, you know, if I have to spend my days making a living, I might as well get, you know, some kind of enjoyment as an artist. Um, and I always kind of fancy myself as being, you know, an artist, but I didn't draw that well and I never took up an instrument. But, you know, I felt like uh, writing really, it gives you that sense of that texture that you look for in art or the, the kind of lyrical sense that you might find in music. So I think it's a very open kind of, uh, you know, medium and, 
I, I felt like I was, there was never a point where I, I felt like I couldn't really make a living at it, you know, just between journalism or teaching or, you know, any other realm where teachers or writers or are, um, kind of in demand. I felt like it might not be, you know, the most lucrative of careers, but I've always felt, you know, compelled to do it and just felt fulfilled, just especially with getting this story out, this novel, and other short stories and other pieces I've done. I've always just, you know, enjoyed the work. How long did it take you to write this novel? I worked on and off, on and off for about four years, between 2002 and 2006. Um, just kind of working on it, getting it where I wanted it to be. I, you know, I would take kind of long breaks within that, you know, just to kind of refresh myself, you know, maybe a couple months here or, or a little bit longer here and there. But, you know, on and off for about four years just to, you know, really felt, feel like I was comfortable with the work. Right. And, and so I think part of, at least I believe, part of doing a book program is to not only just talk about, you know, the end result. I think it's important to talk about the journey as well. Um, mm-hmm. What, you know, and of course, I think, you know, really talking a little bit about process, um, I, I think is important. Um, mm-hmm. well, so are, are you one of these kind of writers that um, you, you have a, a daily schedule and you approach it like that with that kind of discipline where you're going to write X number of hours per day, not miss a day, barely eat, or <laughs> is it a little bit more sane, where <laughs> more more flexibility for uh, other things to happen in your life and family and so forth? Uh, I'd like to say I have a daily, a very disciplined daily approach, but it, it's, you know, been very difficult. But, you know, I, I kind of like to leave myself a little bit, you know, more open and a little bit more flexible because I find that sometimes the things that draw you away from the daily writing schedule are, you know, at the same time, the very experiences that, you know, you end up incorporating into your work. So I'm one of those people who I don't really write that quickly. You know, I'm kind of, it takes me a while to get projects out. But I think within that kind of schedule, I like to be flexible, you know, just to have those experiences that I need to kind of stay sane and to feel like I'm still kind of engaged with the world as I'm writing. Right. And I think also the, the biggest part of the discipline for me is just been a, being able to have enough time to read, to kind of see what's out there, to kind of revisit old works and, you know, constantly be able to experience other people in the craft because I think that's a lot of times where a lot of tension comes with writers when they don't really have the time to read or don't make the time to read when they're working on their own work and you kind of need to have more voices than your own. See, that's very interesting. Um, I've certainly talked to uh, writers who are like, I can't have so many voices. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's different for, for different writers, but yeah, that's, that's really interesting that you said that. Um, mm-hmm. So so talk about talk about models. Um, a lot of people, I suppose, writers who you know are inspired by certain folk because of voice, tone, whatever. Like, mm-hmm. Who 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 inspired you in terms of like uh, creative artists or writers to to like want to write? I think for me, one of uh, my main inspirations was a writer by the name of uh, Albert Murray, who is from here in Mobile, but he. Um, was known for many years as a jazz historian and still very much he's 90 he's in his 90s now he's 91 just had a book that came out actually about a year ago uh, about a year or two ago but he's a novelist he's been writing novels for the past uh, about 40 years but he did a a biography of Count Basie um, also a book called Stomping the Blues Um, so he uh, kind of was an interesting study in a person who has done history 
biography and also uh, poetry and fiction. So he's done a little bit of everything, but he has this great sense of musicality uh, in his work within the lines, but also just capturing kind of just a musical essence in terms of the lives of musicians, but also a musicality in his language. So that's somebody who really um, inspired me coming up. And he's definitely, I guess, to some degree, really associated with like Ralph Ellison, right? Like he's. Yeah, yeah. They were classmates at Tuskegee. They had a um, really uh, interesting uh, collection of letters between them that, that was published called Trading Twelves. Um, just letters they sent to each other over the years. But yeah, they are. Um, it's interesting. There's a, a really well-known photo of them that kind of shows both of them together laughing, and they were always kind of associated with one another. So it's it's interesting to see two guys who kind of went to college together ended up in the same profession and kind of had this relationship over you know years and years all right absolutely um i think um i think roy's choice to remain in mobile enter his family's business is portrayed as a reaction to both michael's lynching and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll just say for our listeners some something that happens to paul right what, what are you saying about family and obligation about obligation to community, about the preservation and continuation of legacy in the black community? Um, I think, you know, just looking at it from that standpoint of a family business, I think sometimes, you know, legacy can be very heavy, uh, but at the same time, legacy is also very necessary to be, you know, aware of the past, aware of the lessons that can be learned from the past, also aware of institutions or structures that have been put in place. Obviously, there was, you know, an institution, this family business, this family history that had, you know, helped Roy more than he could ever understand. So he was struggling with that, but at the same time, I think he also appreciated that that's something that, you know, other people, you know, in the black community might not have had. So he definitely had some roots that went back, you know, years and years, this connection to his past, because that's, I think, through our history, uh, is one thing that we haven't necessarily always had. You know, there have been these cutoffs where we don't necessarily know family history, but Roy kind of had this link, and it could be a heavy link sometimes, but also it was this way that he could kind of connect to his past and, you know, try to reconcile some things. Right, absolutely. So so this book has been out for, for, for a minute. Are you are you presently working on uh, a new work or like what are you working on right now? Uh, I'm working on uh, a new piece. This one um, is probably going to take place mainly in the 1950s, kind of around you know the Montgomery bus boycott days. Um, this was something that was always kind of interesting to me uh, growing up in Montgomery. And also uh, Nat King Cole uh, was born in Montgomery. He later moved to Chicago, but it's kind of loosely based on you know, the life of Nat King Cole and um, like a, a young man also from Mobile, who uh, Montgomery, who is, you know, portrayed as a friend of his, who kind of is also trying to make his way as a, a struggling kind of journeyman musician in the 1950s. So I'm kind of looking at, you know, as this explosion in black music that was happening in the 1950s and also, you know, some of the things happening in, in cities like Montgomery with civil rights history and kind of looking at the parallels between, you know, civil rights and also some of the music, uh, some of the beautiful music that was coming out at that time. And it, it, it's a book that I think is very much inspired by, you know, the work of uh, Albert Murray, his music-related pieces. Right, absolutely. So I'm, I'm wondering, is it is it intentional that you're going to make Montgomery... Um, you know, something the way other writers make other cities, like, uh, 
you know, like how, how the wires made, you know, Baltimore, right, uh, right. really compelling, uh, and an amazing place to, to, you know, to, to, to pay attention to. And you know how writers have their relationship to the place that they're from, or, you know, if we're talking about Faulkner or whomever else, is, is that, is that an intention of yours to, you know, really plumb, um, stories that are, uh, Montgomery, more Montgomery centric or, I think it could be um now like she's walking is actually uh <clears throat> mainly takes place here in mobile um which is a couple hours south of montgomery mm-hmm. so and i have and um you know I think you know looking at the work of say like you know Ernest Gaines for example or or Gail Jones or, or people you know I, I think black southern writers who have this very kind of well developed sense of place that they keep coming back to, but it's also you know, kind of a starting point that a story, even though it takes place in a particular city or a particular setting, it can kind of go so many places just in time and in place. So I think for me, you know, just looking at places in Alabama like Mobile and Montgomery, and I have actually a short story that I'm working on that takes place in Birmingham, kind of a more contemporary piece. But, yeah, it's just interesting, all those places you kind of visit as a child or, you know, places that you called home you kind of look you know i feel like i kind of look back on them as a writer and kind of you know i'm drawing pieces of those and kind of putting them into the work you know maybe just try to put myself in you know put myself in kind of a historical sense of you know kind of learning the cities you know more and i think it just shows me you know this relationship i have with places i've called home you're always learning what that you know what that place is or you're always discovering new things about it right absolutely i'm curious though you being a southern writer and the South is, you know, having <laughs> a really important, uh, like, position in, in how things work here in America. What, what is the hope for the South, given all of what, you know, in some, in, in many ways, like, we're all connected to it, right? Like, I'm, I'm from the East Coast, but I was raised by Southerners, all right? Right, right. Out here in Oakland, in Oakland, California. And, but, but there's, a, you know, there, there's a connection to the South in some way. Right. As an observer, as a communicator, as a writer, as a thinker, what, what's your impression of uh, what the South will bear uh, now in the future? What is the hope of the South, and what do you think is going to happen there with us? You know, I think for me, I see a great deal of optimism in some ways, and I think partly because... I know so many people who are either from the South or maybe came to the South to go to, you know, historically black colleges or what have you and ended up staying just because I think just in terms of economic opportunity, the cost of living is so much better than it might be in other places that I see a lot of people who've come and prospered in terms of helping to revitalize communities, you know, buying homes in certain places. And I think that's been like a tremendous presence of people who have, you know, maybe had some experience on the East Coast or the West Coast or or where have you in in the Midwest and have, you know, in some ways urban sensibilities and they can appreciate you know, being in other cities and, and experiencing a different pace of life, but then they can kind of come back and kind of develop, you know, use that experience, but also help to kind of develop economic opportunities in places where, you know, a lot of people might not have ventured outside of their comfort zones. And I think that's just so important because as, you know, the South is growing, unfortunately I see some people who haven't, you know, experienced things kind of being a little bit left behind. You know, some family members who are kind of, you know, losing losing property and that kind of thing. So, 
you know, when you see people coming back, I think there's a great deal of new energy or, or uh, growth, you know, or a new mindset that kind of comes into the South as, as young people of maybe our generation are returning to maybe family roots. So I think it, you know, I think it is helpful. I think that is a reason for me to be or us to be a little bit more optimistic about things that are happening. Absolutely. <laughs> and I certainly hope that bears out. I want to thank you very much, Robbie Hopper, for being on the program. You have a wonderful book. Um, I really appreciate you being on. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad. Uh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Take care. Well, thanks a lot. You've been listening to author Robbie Howard, and we've been talking about his novel, Light Trees Walking. For more information about Light Trees Walking and Robbie Howard, you can go to Robbie Howard's website. Uh, that is www.robbiehoward.com, or you can go to any fine independent bookstore and find his beautiful novel. I've been your host, Kevin Cartwright, here on Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. I'd like to thank Dolores Gadai for her amazing research assistance for this interview as well as Gary Baca for engineering today's program. Thank you for listening, and happy Kwanzaa. of Latino politics and art in Northern California. Radio 2050, the anticipated year when the majority turns, la gente moving together toward tomorrow's majority. Join host Paul S. Flores and the Aztec Parrot on Saturday night, 6.30 to 7, on Free Speech Radio, KPFA 94.1, Berkeley. Dame la si en tu voz el destino parece rendirse como ves, dame la A, 